that. Early on in my introduction to the military, I did not serve, but I was around a lot of men and women in uniform. Um, I heard a story that I've never quite forgotten, and it was a friend of mine who was a, he had been in the Army, and then he chose to stay on as a reservist, and he was a chaplain. And uh, each year uh, during a summer month, he had to go, I think, two or three or sometimes four weeks for some kind of special training. And this particular year, he flew to the Middle East, and um, he told the story about it being very warm and in, in canvas tents, basically a medical field unit, sometimes called a mass unit. But um, they were being trained on how to assist uh, doctors and other practitioners. And um, a lot of these in the Army, as you well know, are teenagers. These are boys and girls who maybe just got out of high school and they enlist. And so they're training these boys and girls, and he, he was part of the group. And he said there was a nun who happened to be a nurse, and she was uh, still in the Army, and she had a tent set up with all the different tools that they had to learn, and from, from clamps to hemostats to, you know, gauze and bandages, the whole nine yards for how to do combat battle medical training, uh, m- medical assistance. And uh, she stood up and said, by the end of uh, 72 hours or three days, you will know all the names of all the instruments. You will know how to hand them to someone when they ask you for them. Uh, you'll know how to prep. You'll know how to you know, keep your hands clean and so forth and so on. And he's sitting there going, there's no way. There's no way. And she began explaining them one at a time. And they used the methodology that some of you already know where I'm going. It's watch one, do one, teach one. So you watched what she did with it. She then showed someone else. They did it, and then they would teach someone else. And the process was repeated again and again and again. Watch one, do one, teach one. And uh, if you make a mistake along the way, someone, of course, would say, well, okay, let's, let's go back. Did you watch how it was done? Now you need to do it correctly, and then you can transfer that knowledge on. Repetition is a powerful lesson. Hands-on repetition is extraordinary because as you watch, do, and teach, you do learn things. I suspect that method works in most areas of life. I can still see my father's hand on my hand as a boy the first time I held a paintbrush because I held it at the end like a stick. And he took my hand and took my fingers up on the metal part where the brushes came out and put my fingers on that. This is how you hold a brush, Michael. I still remember the first time I held a hammer up by the head of the hammer. No, 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 you hold the hammer at the end of the handle because you get more leverage and more power and all I could go. And to this day, when I see a person holding a paintbrush or a hammer wrong, I want to go correct them. Not because I'm right and they're wrong, because they're using the tool in the wrong way. And it works much better if you use the tool in the right way. Watch it, do it, teach it and you'll have it for life. It is the same in sports, whether throwing a football, a baseball, shooting a basket, catching a pass, a, a inter, trying to get a rebound or a pitch, um, maybe baking bread and sewing clothes and how to do a budget and brushing your teeth and all the things in life we're watching, we're doing, and we're teaching. And the more we do those things, they become rote. We don't have to think about them. Watch one, do one, teach one. To put a fine point on it, we need examples. We need people that know how to do this so they can teach you and me how to watch, do, and teach. 
how much more when it comes to the spiritual life? How much more do we need others of faith to watch us, to teach us, to show us how to transfer, to watch one, do one, teach one, to grow in the spiritual disciplines of life? It is a foregone conclusion that we need these examples, but our culture changes with every decade, and things come and go. My youth was very different than those of you in your 20s and 30s today. My younger years, we pursued elder people. We chased after those with wisdom. We wanted to have their knowledge. Cindy and I always chased couples that were 4 or 10 or 12 years older than us to learn how in the world do you make this marriage what it needs to be. I don't mean to be unkind. It's more of a diagnosis, but younger men and women don't need older people today. You know everything. You can perform circles around us in technology. You can run the world from your phone. I have a young friend in Birmingham, Alabama, who literally from his phone can take over my computer screen and repair things. That may not be hard for some of you. That seems pretty science fiction to me. But it does not make you mature. Losses and gains, hardships, working through broken promises those things help you grow up the longer you live and the just not showing up every day because certainly older people may not be more mature that's not one-to-one but generally speaking a man or woman who's growing in christ and who's ahead of you has an awful lot to offer you as an example to how to live the christian life they've moved past blame they've moved past entitlement They've moved past playing the victim when something goes wrong. They know it doesn't amount to anything to point the finger or to whine or complain. What matters is to get busy and get back on track and to maybe start over and to do it again. It's like when you're a new mom and you have a baby that is not nursing, you don't need to talk to a man, you need to talk to a mother who's nursed babies. When you have those terrible twos or whatever number it is today and those children are about to drive you nuts, you need a woman who's raised two or three kids past those years. When you have teenagers, all bets are off. (laughs) And you need other parents who have gone through those years and said, yeah, they are at some level, but you will get through this. When one of your adult children goes through a divorce or substance abuse or in and out of jail or you fill in the blank, I need someone else who has gone down that road to walk with me. That's an example to follow. Your elders may be imperfect, but do not overlook what they have to offer. In this passage, Paul gives us some simple and very profound teaching. Number one, follow my example. Verse 17, Philippians chapter 3, our 18th message in the series. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul uses a compound idea here. The phrase join in following our example is one word in the Greek New Testament. One of the problems with translating, there's no such thing as word-for-word translation. Sometimes you have phrases that are needed to translate a word in any language, and this is one such example. In Greek, it's the word sumimites. 
Sumimitase, which is where the English gets the word imitate. We pull that into our language. Imitate them. If you know the word mimic, that is a stem of this word. To mimic is to follow, to do what someone else has done the way they've done it. Watch one, do one, teach one, just like they've done it. Paul says, follow my example. Imitate me. Observe those who are walking around me. Now, when he says this, observe those, there's a number of ideas that are linked together in his thinking. So you're following this example, you're imitating me, but then he says, you're walking, there's a directionality to this, not just observation, not just passive, but you're following this according to a pattern. Watch one, do one, teach one, it always works. You're following someone who's ahead of you in the spiritual life. Keep in mind the preceding context, Paul had talked about his own pedigree. He was a Jew's Jew, he was a rabbinic scholar. We use the term lawyer, but don't misconstrue that with the way we think of attorneys or counsel today. A lawyer in the first century was one who knew the law of God inside and out and knew how to apply it and interpret it and understand it. He was the, because the government and religion, if you will, was one entity. And so a scholar of the law was a rabbinic person who knew the Bible, we might say. He says, I count that as rubbish. I count it as trash compared to what I gain in Christ Jesus. That's the pattern that he is following. Follow my example into Christ's likeness. This word pattern, again, we've talked about it before in verse 17. It's the word tupos in Greek, type in English. And some of you are old enough to remember a real typewriter. That you took a piece of paper, you put it in the roller, the binder, you ran it forward, you put it against the platen, that's the hard rubber spool, uh, soft but also hard, and then whether it was an element or an actual strike, it hit the ribbon, the paper is in between the ribbon and the platen, and the impact, that strike, what's left behind is the type. We think of the type as what's on your, the type face or a font. That's not incorrect in usage, that's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word means the mark left behind. When it hit and struck something, it left an imperature. Paul says, imitate me, watch those around me, because you've got a pattern. And that pattern is foolproof. That pattern always works. Imitate us. Now, a side lesson here, it strikes me. Who's following whom? Paul is very clear here in other passages. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, he writes, I still remember in college reading this for the first time, someone had two cinder blocks and just hit me on both sides of my head, just startling, saw stars. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now, he's the apostle. He's the elder statesman. Of course we would follow him. But it occurred to me, am I an example? Are you an example? Should anyone imitate you? Or me? That's a hard question. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Um, are you worth following? Are you worth imitating? Am I? The churches I've served over the years, when we would bring elders to nominate, I would give this little spiel at the end of the whole process and I would look these elders in the eye and I would say when we 
pray for you and call you an elder of this assembly, we're stamping the word example on your forehead. Live like he lives. Be married, treat his wife like he does. Raise children like he does. Be kind, be generous, be hospitable, be sober-minded, be like this person. That should terrify anybody with half a brain. But that's the role of the shepherd because we need an example to follow. We need someone who knows where they're going and how to get there because we don't know it all. Are you worth imitating? And a, perhaps a meddlesome question, is anybody following you? Hard questions, not meant to provoke guilt, but meant to ask the question, where are our examples? Where are the heroes? The heroes are gone. Some of you will be unhappy with me. I don't mind anymore. <laughs> I love John Wayne. I love John Wayne movies. A friend of mine uh, said, easily the reason you like black and white movies is because you are. <laughs> I said, yeah, the world will be a better place. Next question. <laughs> the Duke was not a fine, upstanding, moral man by any stretch of imagination, but when he was in a film, he fought producers to be sure ethnicities were well presented. Even in the dialogues, he did not treat the Indian population the way most Westerns did. He was very, very adamant about all men were the same. He may not have liked his politics. I loved his politics. I loved the way he was a patriot of our country. And some Christian woman came along and analyzed the problem with the American churches because we're white John Waynes. You can put anything in print and people will buy it. I'm not saying he's the example. What I am saying is there was a time we could point to a person and say, they're strong, they're good, they make good decisions. You go into a bar fight, I want John Wayne with me. I don't want somebody that's going to talk about how you feel. I want somebody to throw a punch. It's not that hard, guys. Who's your example? And you can't even say Churchill's your example today. You'll be vilified by that. What political person are you going to say, I follow that man, that woman, without fear of ridicule? As a believer in Jesus Christ, your calling is higher. John Wayne means nothing. But men and women of faith who are trying to be good husbands, wives, moms, dads, friends, workers in the field, businessmen and women, medical profession, teacher, you're trying to follow Christ. You need to be an example. You need to stand out head and shoulders above the pack. That's what we need. He then transitions to this interesting, almost abrupt, beware of enemies, verse 18. Follow my example, because there's a lot of bad examples out there. Verse 18, for many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. What a chilling phrase. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. There's a connection between verse 17 and 18 with the word walk. You're to walk in a way of a pattern that Paul is giving you. Let's just call it a maturing, growing Christian, as opposed to the way of the world that is not merely uh, 
influential or seeking or neutral zone. They're evil. They're enemies, language we don't like to use today. Now notice something here. Paul is not angry or vindictive. In fact, many casual readers and commentators make a big deal about this. This is the only time in Paul's letters we see him weep. He's just, for all intents and purposes, called out and blistered the Judaizers for their legalism. He said, all that I count as rubbish for the gain of Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'll follow Christ. You follow me. You imitate me. Do what I'm doing. Watch out for these people. But he's not mad at them. He cries over it. Years ago, I heard Luis Palau speak in a very crowded auditorium. He made everybody close their eyes. I never like when people do that. Close your eyes. Just tells you about my rebellion. Close your eyes. What do, what do we do? <laughs> close your eyes. And he asked us a series of questions. And then he got to this question I still remember. Have you cried over someone who's lost? Still remember it. Don't raise your hand, have you? You wept over a person that doesn't know the Lord? Maybe you, in a Christian sort of way, hate their guts, but they don't know Christ. And if you and I are examples, I'm saying it all rides on you and me. Do not hear me say that. Paul's weeping comes from the false teachers who are affecting the flock of God But not so much that he wants God to destroy them, but he wants them to be saved. Enemies of the cross is an extraordinary sentence in any language. They are enemies of the cross. We we have, you know, we always try to be kind and loving, and I'm all about that. You don't have to be Henri for Henri's sake, but... This seeker and neutral and religious and they're good people and they're on their way. I'm sorry, it's either or in the Testament. You either are an enemy of God or a friend of God, period. Boy, that doesn't play well, does it? You're either his enemy or his friend. There's no neutral ground. There's no in-between. There's no Switzerland theologically. And he explains this. He says, their end is their destruction, their God is their appetite, their glory is their shame, and their mind is earthly. Their end is destruction is a clear reference to eternal damnation. If if you don't understand who Christ is, you're an enemy of the cross, your end is not good. Their God is their appetite. (laughs) I think the King James says their belly is their God, if I remember correctly. What a, what a deep picture. Now, there's some debate about, is he talking about the Judaizers and their kosher diet or the so-called Gnostics and their different diet and that we identify? Eh, it gets too deep sometimes. Commentators sometimes need to chill out. But it's a picture. What, what draws us? What's our appetite? It's not an affection for God. It's an affection for food. Third, the glory is their shame. And again, a very indelicate topic, the idea of an identity that casts aside and comes out and has no shame glories in that. That's exactly what it means in any, in any arena of life. That which we know is wrong, we do it with hubris, 
with, with impertinence, and we say, this is what I'm going to do. I don't care. I've shared the story many times with you all about a friend of mine's daughter who chose to move in with her boyfriend, and wonderful mom and dad, good godly parents met with her and just poured their heart out. I said, honey, this isn't right. You know this isn't right. You, you, you don't live with your boyfriend. And she said, quote, I've talked with Jesus, and we've come to an arrangement. And glory is your shame. You can do what you want to do. God made man in his image, and man keeps trying to make God in our image. Fourth, their mind's earthly. It's the here and now. There's no concern for eternity. There's no concern for the law long term. It's now enemies of the cross. What a horrible statement. The cross, the cross is not this emblem. It's a strange thing to think about the cross. Some of you probably wear it. Don't hide it. I'm not saying that. But we don't put, you know, electric chairs on our neck. We don't put hypodermic needles with tourniquets around our neck. What's the cross? It's a metonymy. It's a stylized beam and a vertical bar, and it's the picture of that's what Christ did. He lived, he died, he was buried, came back from the dead, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised a free gift of eternal life that can never be taken away. The cross is emblematic. The cross reminds us that he died in your place on your behalf instead of you. He died in my place on my behalf instead of me, so I did not have to pay the punishment for my sin, which I could not, nor could you. Whether it's legalistic Judaizers or he's talking to a larger audience, don't miss the point. You're either for him or against him. Paul writes this with tears, not anger and vengeance. But unlike these enemies, he changes a bit. Our citizenship is in heaven. Be imitators of me. Follow after what I'm telling you. There's a pattern set before you. There are enemies who are always going to be there, but there's something you need to focus on. Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things under uh, to himself. Now, we need to think about this in two frames. There's our present citizenship and our heavenly citizenship. Our present citizenship is bound by a mortal body. It's bound by trouble, by sin, by disease, all that we know too well, and yet we're to live in this. At the time Paul's writing, in, in the culture, if you will, be careful here not to overstate this, but with Plato and Aristotle and Athens, what's happening in the mindset at that particular time to understand citizenship is worth a couple of minutes to think about. When they heard citizenship, what did they think? Um, one scholar named Herman Strutman writes, the authority of the law voluntarily recognized by all its citizens is the presupposition for the development of spiritual values, of cultural achievements, of well-being. If the people that live together in a geographic and ethnic arena agree on the same things, that's a citizenship. Our values come from that. That's what he's writing in academic ease. The national sense lives on with a free subjection of the citizens having to the task of furthering the whole. They were to be a constant sense 
of, they would be aware of the constant sense of tyranny of the barbarian people. The order of the state had a religious sanction. The polis, which is part of the word, the, the city, the polis was a religious society. The nomos, the law, was the unity of church and state. To say it super simple words, ethnicity and geography and agreeing upon laws is a good thing. Stop at a stop sign. Don't drive under the influence. Don't pull out a weapon and take something that's not yours. Don't kill someone else. Don't assault somebody. Don't take a bat and run up behind a person and hit them over the head and steal their wallet. There were, there were an ethnic and geographic parameter, and that's why we hung on to the word, in some states, the commonwealth. It was for the common benefit of those people. This is so basic and so intuitive, but the world has distorted theology so avariciously that now evil is good and good is evil. We've lived long enough to see it in our country. The first century audience is hearing Paul say this, hears citizenship, and they think something different than a passing word in the Bible. They think, that's where I live. That's home. That's where I live and move and have my being. That's where friends help me in a pinch. That's where I help friends in a pinch. That's where we do things together like roads and buildings and infrastructure and schools. That's a commonwealth. But the New Testament uses this word about 160 times. It's a fascinating study. It can be something like just a neighborhood, but there's no doubt that it's pointing to the New Jerusalem, the holy city. The citizenship in heaven is depicted by this little tiny state the size of Connecticut over there called Israel. And on Mount Moriah, clear back from Abram's time to Abraham and Isaac, all the way to the Solomon Temple and on beyond, God chose that little spot. I don't know how many tours I've led to Israel, but it's striking the number of people. There will always be one or two. And they get out of Ben Gurion. We go to the first site, Caesarea Maritima on the water. And that's where Paul would have spoken before Agrippa. Um, that's where the so-called Pontius Pilate seal is found. There's a, a piece of stone that had Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Caesarea. A lot going on. The first stop, we, I don't know how many people say, this feels like home. I said that the first time I went to Israel. I got to the Sea of Galilee. And I said, this is weird. It's dumb. I'm a dumb tourist. Feels like I belong here. It's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. But there's something about the citizenship of heaven. Because when you stand in Caesarea Martima and you stand in that large arena, you envision Paul about 100 yards standing before Agrippa and Felix, that's where it started. That's where the message of Jesus Christ came on this earth and where Paul the Apostle was handpicked to take the gospel around the world to tell you your citizenship is not Middle Tennessee or New York City or Chicago, Illinois or Los Angeles, California or fill in the blank. Augustine called it cities of God and the city of man. It's just a picture. But Paul is very clear. Our future citizenship awaits a Savior. This Savior is not just a Savior of our sins. The savior of our sins. This Savior created and sustained everything that you can see. I've come clean before. I'm a six-day creationist until I die. 
And then Jesus will say, you were right. And I'll say, thank you, you were right. <laughs> and all my old earth friends can get in line and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if he can create water, turn water into wine, give a blind man a new set of eyes, walk on water, stop a storm, raise Lazarus from the dead, he can handle laws of physics. Or he's not God. And if he created and sustains all that we see out there through the Hubble or the electron, I think he can handle the transformation and the conformity that we need. The same power that created the environment you and I observe is the same power that's going to resurrect the dead and the same power that he's referring to here. He will transform us. The good thing about getting older and having ailments and diseases is you look forward to that new body. You look forward to that new body. My two favorite old phrases, John Walford was in his late 90s and somebody asked him how he was doing. He said, what doesn't hurt doesn't work. (laughs) The other one was Doc Sweeting. Someone asked him, what's it like to be older? He said, I feel like a young man with something really wrong. (laughs) That's my new one. I feel like a young man with something really wrong. The old Bonnie Raitt song, those lines are looking back at you in the mirror. What happened? How did it get here so quickly? I always hesitate talking to young people about being old. I really don't. I just said that. (laughs) My citizenship is not in my 70s and 80s and more back surgeries and losing weight and dyeing my hair and all that baloney. My citizenship is in an eternal state with an eternal body with the Savior of my soul. And so is yours. And yet we're fixated on this one. It's not a death wish. A couple lessons. First one I mentioned already, following and being examples. Um, We desperately need men and women who are courageous enough to be an example. Julian Nimmons with FCA coaches. We got a couple of folks that stepped up to do that. We need a lot more that'll step up and say, "Hey, I'll come alongside and help coach. I'll help a school. I'll be a mentor. I'll be a friend." You have a sphere. Everyone in this room has a sphere of influence. You may not want to engage it, but you got one, and you got to ask how you're using it. I don't know. There's risk involved. There's risk involved in anything that means it has value. Some of you are in professions, whether it's medical or teaching or whatever, and you can't say things. You live and die by what you can't say. Pray for ways to say it. Praise for ways to say it. Look for that opportunity. Heart surgeon, a friend of mine in Dallas, was sued for class action lawsuit for years because she shared Christ with girls that were very young, unmarried, had complicated pregnancies. She was a neonatal cardiologist, so when they came to her, things were not good. And she loved them. And she said, I'll do all I can as a surgeon. I'll do all I can to help your little baby. But can I tell you something else you really need? Class action lawsuit went on for years. She came out all right. Do I recommend it? Nope. If she was standing here today, she'd tell you she's glad she did. I can't tell you what, but you better ask the question if you want to be an example. Here's the downside of this. You're already an example, whether you know it or not. Any parent of a young child knows 
When they say those things, they got it from you. You're an example whether you know it or not. You're an example of the way you treat your wife, whether you hold the door, you hug her, put your arm around her, you kiss her on the cheek, whether you smile at her when you see her. You're an example when you yell at your children or you talk to them. You're an example when you get down on a knee and look at your child in the eye versus yell and tower over him or her. We're examples in a million ways, and those are all important ways, but are you an example for Jesus Christ? Am I? This is hard stuff. I'm not pretending to be holier than thou. This is hard, guys. But this is what matters. And what matters is always hard. Make no mistake. Care and caution, verses 18 and 19, are this chilling warning. That phrase just dismantled me, enemies of the cross of Christ. It just makes, I'm not a person that gets creeped out. That creeps me out. That you're an enemy of the solution to your problem. Not a seeker, not a curious person. You're an enemy of the cross of Christ. That terrifies me. And the way he explains it terrifies me even more. End is their destruction, their God is their appetite. I am, I don't eat breakfast. I don't believe in breakfast. I've never been hungry at breakfast my entire life. It's for wimps. I don't eat breakfast. Most important meal of the day. Boy, have I heard that in my entire life. My mother would cram a piece of toast or a Pop-Tart as I went out the door to school. I've never been hungry one day in the morning, and that tells me don't eat, Michael. Somewhere between 10, 30, and 11, it all changes. If I eat breakfast, I get hungrier, by the way, but that's another story. By 10, 30, 11, I'm thinking about lunch, and my belly can be my God. And if I'm having lunch with somebody... I, always, I used to do the salad thing. I used to try to be a good guy. I just eat hamburger and french fries today. I don't care anymore. I, and I tell Cindy, I had, I had hamburger and fries at lunch. She just gives me the look. <laughs> it's so dumb how much we think about food. And right now you're thinking about food because <laughs> I'm talking about it. And you didn't have breakfast, you had a cup of coffee, and your stomach's growling, and you're going to go to the restaurant, and it easily finishes on time when you get to Jay's. I know how this works. <laughs> or the place in the factory that serves tacos. I saw half y'all there. <laughs> what is it telling you in me? That's more important than anything in my plate that day, pun intended. Look at the people he calls enemies of the cross and take fair warning. He's not talking about losing your salvation or you're not saved. He's saying those are the things that drive them and those are the consequences of what they believe. So pay alert, pay attention, take, take note. Finally, heaven is our home. Um, we lost Mitch last week, Misty, and her sons lost Mitch last week. My friend, uh, doctor friend, oral uh, orthopedic, a spine surgeon from Virginia, D.C. area, uh, lost his mom in Buffalo, New York. And he, we've been talking on the phone as he drives seven hours back and forth. And he said, Michael, I've been thinking a lot about heaven. He read Aunt Randy Alcorn's little book on heaven, which is a good read, but he's got a big book, which is a better read. And we don't think about heaven. I, I loved our kids' answers, first and second hour. Some were hysterical. And yet it's childlike faith, is it not? How many of us wanted to fly when we were a kid? And you want to go to heaven? I get to fly when I go to heaven? It's interesting what is universal. But heaven's our home. 
Our citizenship is not a group of people that all have the same voting block and the same values and justices, as important as that is. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's our home. We're pilgrims, we're sojourners, we're travelers. This earth is not our home. This life at best is a clean bus station. It's a waiting zone. That doesn't mean we don't live well. It means we live toward. This is not easy. It takes God's word and God's spirit to keep us from a horizontal viewpoint of life. But your citizenship is in heaven. Not on this plane. I never thought I'd live to a time when evil was called good. I never thought I'd live to a time when felons are set free without bail. I never thought I'd live to a time when you could burn down a city without consequence. I never thought I'd live to a time when you can lie and cheat and murder and call yourself whatever you want and it'd be okay. I never thought I'd see that day. Israel saw it over and over again. Rome was eventually dismantled. I go back and read history I'm reading a two-volume set with some friends right now, and I'll never get over the Roman Empire's dominance on the planet. And this little group of Goths, known as the Visigoths, metaphorically come up over the hill and begin to dismantle the Roman Empire. The most powerful occupying nation and military on the planet falls apart. Nothing lasts. Because governments are corrupt. They're full of evil people. Are there good people in government? Sure. Are there good men and women who run for office? Absolutely. But boy, their battle is tough because you can't fix sin. You can't fix a broken, evil world because they're enemies of the cross. By exerting the power that he has, mark it down, what he created and sustained, he's going to transform and conform you and me to an otherworldly existence. I, I looked it up this week. I should have reached out to some of you in the industry. I did not, but... This Heaven is a Wonderful Place song just kept popping into my head. We used to teach our kids, Heaven is a Wonderful Place, filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Because Heaven is one. You don't know this song? Some of you do. Salty may have written it, but it just seems older than that to me. I don't know. It's true. When I get to heaven, I'm going to walk with Jesus. When I get to heaven, I'm going to see his face. When I get to heaven, I'm going to talk with Jesus. Glory, hallelujah, I'm saved. Oh, yes, I'm saved, saved, wonderfully saved, saved by the blood of the Lamb. Saved, saved, wonderfully saved. And I'm so glad I am. Hallelujah. Do you really believe that? Heaven is a wonderful place. Filled with glory and grace. I want to see, one of my kids used to say, she couldn't say, Savior's face. She said, I want to see my Flavior's face. Because <laughs> heaven is a wonderful place. When you're a child, it seems like it. When you get in middle years, it's like it's out there. I got bills to pay, children to raise, money to make, kingdoms to conquer, goals to achieve, books to publish, patience to see, people to train. Heaven's out there. You're a citizen of an eternal kingdom. At the moment we cross this threshold, the things of the earth will grow strangely dim. And Paul is telling you and me, be an imitator of him as he follows Jesus Christ. Because there are enemies of the cross, and they're not helpful. You are not in a comfortable Judeo-Christian zone. You're in enemy territory. He weeps over those people. He's not mad at them. But then he turns the table and says, 
your homes elsewhere. Live as a husband, as a wife, as a single man, woman, as a parent, as a grandparent. Live as though your home is in heaven. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, even when it's at one level super simple, and at one level it is so complex. But it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Spurgeon reminds me again and again, no one ever outgrows the scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. May we grow and mature, never stop, never reach for the bench, never get tired of trying to follow you by faith, to live faithfully, to be an example to others. We desperately need men and women who will stand courageously and be a good example of a parent, of a mom, of a dad, of a student at a campus that's hostile to all things Christ. Give us the courage we need. And, and as we follow you by faith, give us enough encouragement to stay at it. Because that's the kind of God you are. In Christ's name I ask. Amen. God bless you all. Have a marvelous week.